0: The lesson we want to talk about this morning, the structure we want to talk about is, maybe seems a little odd, it won't be in just a moment when I explain it, is that form of doctrine. That's a phrase that comes out of the book of Romans in chapter 6 and verse 17. I originally titled the sermon, Does Your Baptism Mean Anything to You? It's kind of a clunky title. That actually comes from a fellow, uh, Jameson. Steward, who I got some of these ideas from, who's kind of spurred me to think about this. But his idea is that unless we understand what really is expected of us when we were baptized or are baptized, we often don't live up to that idea. And I think a lot of people don't. I I think that's been a problem of churches uh, over the the last, well, since the beginning. Right away, they began to experience the fact that some people who became Christians in different churches, didn't live like it at all. Now I know in our lifetime, we've certainly seen that to be the case. That people who call themselves Christians and are baptized or become Christians don't live like they ought to. This is the biggest hindrance to other people to become a Christian is what they see among Christians. That's the biggest hindrance that there is. And there's some other issues that hinder people, but... I can tell you, I certainly see that that's a that that is a valid concern of people. That the people that call themselves Christians don't live like they think they should. Now we ought have to understand this. Sometimes it's very unfair. The world will hold you up to a higher standard than it does itself. They can sleep with as many people as they want to, but if they find out that you committed adultery, you know it becomes a disqualifying point. So yes, the world never lives up to its own standards. They're going to hold Christians to a higher standard. And you know what? Actually, they should hold Christians to a higher standard and how they behave. But I want to talk about this from another angle. I'm going to talk about to us that are Christians for the most part, and some maybe in this audience who aren't, but are, but are certainly close or thinking about that. What, what does your baptism mean to you? What should it mean to you that you've been baptized into Christ? Let's go over to the book of Romans. There's a section, we're, we're going to start in this part of the chapter, probably go backwards just a little bit in a few moments, but read with me here. Paul is discussing this subject of baptism and salvation with the Romans here, because they're apparently having trouble with this very issue. What is does it really mean to them? A lot of them were thinking that because they're not under the law of Moses anymore, that they were free to do what they want. They'd heard that they were free in Christ, and they'd been given liberty, and so they thought that meant they were given moral liberty to live however they wanted to live. And Paul is saying, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. I think the King James there says, God forbid. The words God and forbid are not there. It more or less means certainly not, but Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? So you've heard we're saved by grace and that's not of law. So therefore, since we're not under the law of Moses, we can just sin or any kind of law. We can just sin because and I think that plenty of people, some of can accused Martin Luther of saying this very thing, that the more we sin, the more God's grace has a chance to save us. So sin isn't a bad thing because the more we sin, then God's grace can be shown to be more abundant in saving us. And Paul is speaking directly against that idea here in this passage. And he says to them something that they should have known, but apparently they didn't know. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now stop there for a moment again, because it's very common if you spend any time at all on the internet listening to people's presentations and sermons or reading any pe- anybody's articles from the evangelical world you will hear people constantly saying that obedience is not necessary to be a christian obedience is not necessary for salvation in fact they're saying that to try even to try to obey is to try to be saved by works and therefore you're negating the grace of god when you try to obey now that's a damnable heresy I guess I can put it that bluntly. It really is more than that. Just just tell Christians and people that they don't have to obey God. What's he say here? Do you not know, Paul's speaking to Christians, that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So here... He says obedience leads to righteousness, and when you obey God, you are leading to salvation. When you disobey God, you're a servant of sin. So the idea that you can just keep sinning because you're a Christian and God's grace is going to cover you is a false teaching, and that's what's been going on now for 500 years uh, or more than that at least. But I know since the time of Martin Luther, this teaching has gained a foothold. It is a logical consequence of the doctrine of salvation by grace only that man has no part in his salvation. It's a logical consequence of that. And Paul here ahead of time was speaking against that. So he says, look, you have two choices. You can obey your own desires. You can obey the desires of, of Satan. You can obey evil and you can obey that, that way of living and you're a slave to that. You're going to be bound by that. And that's what people today, it's sad to see them sit, them get wrapped up in the bondage of Satan and they just can't figure out how to get out of it. One sin leads to another and they get trapped and they don't even realize how trapped they are sometimes because in order to think, get out of it, they have to go backwards and they don't want to go there. Whatever, a lot of people, whatever leads them to any thought of God or responsibility or morality just isn't going to happen to them. I don't care how bad things get over here for them. They will, they will never go back to think of thought that leads them and say, you know what, I need to obey God. I need to stop living this way. They won't do it. That's why they hate God so much. But he says, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now here is Paul saying to Christians, that before they were Christians, they were slaves of sin, but they obeyed something. And when they obeyed something, then they were delivered from their sin. You think Paul thinks it's okay to obey God and be delivered from sin, that that's the way you, that's the way you're saved by obedience? Pretty obvious. Paul thinks here that obedience to the will of God is the way to be saved. Because he says you were slaves of sin. You obeyed a form of doctrine that you saw that I showed you and then you were delivered from that. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you're still a slave. You Christians are still slaves. But you've been set free from the kind of slavery that hurts you. You've been given a new master, a master who loves you, and a master who has your your best interest at heart. And he says, I speak in human terms. I think he's... Some would say he's almost apologizing for bringing up slavery to them because slavery was so common in the Roman Empire that I've told you before. Apparently in the city of Rome at this time, in, the, in that city, I don't know if it wasn't true throughout the whole empire, but in the city of Rome, two out of every three people you met was a slave of some sort. Only one third of the people in the city of Rome were free, free men. The rest were servants. Now they weren't all in chains but they certainly weren't free to do whatever they wanted to do. And so he's kind of kind of saying, I hate to speak about slavery to you, but because of the weakness of your flesh, you're going to take it the wrong way. But he says, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. <clears throat> I, we don't have time this morning to speak in depth of some of, these, some of the things that's can, that are referred to in this verse. But the human condition and human nature is such that we don't really stay static very long in our lives even. We're, we're going to go further and further and further in the way that we live, whether it's for good or whether it's for evil. We're going to go further. And he says, you people, you, you, you Romans who were Gentiles, before you became Christians, you were slaves of uncleanness. That which need to be purged out. The word here is akarthesia. I almost can't say the accenting right. A catharsis is something where you purge something. A cathartic is something that makes your body expel po- toxins or poisons or waste. That's a cathartic. So somebody can have a cathar they can smack you over the head and say it was a cathartic experience because I got rid of my anger. This is a catharsis. It means that which is unpurged so your your body's condition when you're full of a very bad food that you ate and it's tearing you up that's unpurged that's uncleanness or when you're when your bowels are full of poison and you're sick by sickened by it and you need to be purged that state that you're in before you get purged of the uncleanness that's what he's referring to here you folks were full of uncleanness your whole lives from top to bottom because sin doesn't sit still, it drags you further and further and further. This is obvious when you look even at the legal system. When you look at people's records and you start reading they, they start look you look at a criminal record, and you'll see the person starts off with a little petty theft, a little you know public disorderliness and, and it just progresses from there, year by year it goes by, and the things they get involved in get worse and worse and worse. Is this untypical? Is this a rare event? Oh, that's the common experience that people have, even in encountering the legal system. A lot of reasons for that, but that's because that sin doesn't satisfy anymore, and once you commit that sin, not only does it not satisfy you, but you see the potential to, even, to get even more of your want what you want, instead of just threatening somebody, if you bang them over the head, you get more of what you want, and so you just keep going further and further in what you do. Now, sexual sins the same way. You see, you start off with small sexual sins, as it were, for which you may feel guilty, but since the world doesn't collapse around you and your life keeps going on, you get minor rewards for committing sexual sin. You keep committing sexual sin. And pretty soon you're consumed by it. There's nothing that satisfies some people. They can't find any real satisfaction at all. And there, there are medical terms for this in dealing with this. They've become such that they cannot be satisfied with almost anything except the most extreme things. This is the way human nature works. You're going to go in that direction. Now you become a slave. You can't stop. You cannot quit. You can't go back because you have to have what you want. And so he says... But I want you, he says, instead of presenting your members for uncleanness and that lawlessness leads to more more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Oh, uh, I, I can't go there. I, I can't go. That would be too far of a trip afield. Sorry. So what is this form of doctrine, he says here, that you submitted yourselves to. And and let's go back and read that again there in Romans 6. He says, uh, but verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I think that most translations have something similar to those words, that form of doctrine. What's Paul talking about here? Oh, and this has been hotly debated because People don't like the conclusions of what's obvious right in front of them. Now, so uh, Robert Whiteside said that the original word tupos, or form, we get the word type from that, T-Y-P-E. You spell it the U and the Y in many languages are interchangeable. We use it, the word type. So the, the word type, or tupos, among other things, signifies a mold into which melted metals are poured to receive the form of the mold. So if you want to make a type of something, you have a mold, you pour something in it, it and in it the, the mold is the type, and the thing you make is the anti-type. It works... huh, Can I even use this illustration anymore? A typewriter? You, you think some of you even understand the idea of a typewriter? Uh, you, you've got a piece of paper here, and you've got, a, you've got a, a metal thing that has a reverse shape of a letter on it, the letter B or something, and when you hit the key... I grew up with a manual typewriter, you know, bang. That that type comes up and bangs the paper and makes a mark on it that becomes the antitype. Now sometimes it's used in reverse of that. But here's the type and the antitype. And that's used in the New Testament for Christ and the church and all those kind of things. But it's a mark that's leaves that creates a mold or a shape. And so metals get poured into this and they receive the form of the mold. They're like the mold. The apostle represents the gospel doctrine as a mold into which the Romans were put put by their baptism. So here's the gospel. It has a form. It's a mold. And you Romans were poured into this mold and therefore you become shaped like the mold by your baptism in order to be fashioned anew. So you, you were this shape you get melted and put into the mold of the gospel, the form of the gospel. Then when you come out, you're the shape of the gospel. And thanks God from the from the heart. Uh, he thanks that, that they did this from their heart. That is, most willingly and sincerely, they yielded to the forming of the gospel of that mold of doctrine and were made new men because, both in principle and in practice. Now that's a long way of saying that they submitted themselves to the gospel of Christ, to that form that it takes. It's not just a a formless idea. The gospel has a shape. Well, what is that shape? Well, he says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, Romans 6, just a little bit ahead of where we've been reading. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, if we've been put into the mold in the likeness of his death, we certainly shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer live as slaves of sin. So here he says that there's a shape to the gospel. He he had just told them that they had been buried, baptized into Christ, buried, poured into a mold in the shape of the gospel. What is the shape of the gospel? Well, there's the shape of the gospel it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the shape of it. And that's that form of doctrine. What we experience in Christ is a death, a burial, and then a resurrection. That's true not only of us in a spiritual, in, in the physical sense, of going down into the water, being buried and brought back up out of the water in baptism, which he refers to early in Romans chapter six, which we'll read. But it becomes the form of the life that we have to live. Not only do we live a life that's been raised from the dead, but there comes time in our life, times in our life repeatedly where we have to die to sin and bury the sin because it's dead and then be raised up from the sin that we commit back and forth again. And so he says this is the shape or form of the gospel. It isn't just something that happens mysteriously in your heart when you believe something and, and there's no set time when you experience this pouring into a mold. I read an article yesterday from a Baptist preacher that was saying that you can't even really tell for sure when you're saved. It's just the moment that happens sometime in your life when you believe that Christ is your Savior You don't really know when it happened or what it is. Well, this passage really teaches against that. You can know when you've been poured into this mold and when you've formed your life according to this. So when we talk to someone about being baptized, it isn't about confirming that you're already saved. It's not just a ritual that you do. It isn't even something you can do to a baby. Because here he tells these Romans... That they've had to make this choice about being a slave or not to sin or to Christ, and they've had to go through the process of being formed by going through a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And then, as I mentioned before, we probably won't get into too much of that here. Maybe a little bit, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, maybe a little bit, but I don't think I'll have time for this. I think we sometimes experience this in a big way as Christians. Have any of you ever? look back on your life before you were a Christian, before you were baptized and almost thought that had to be somebody else that did that. That couldn't have been me that did that. And can I say, thank God for that feeling. Hallelujah, that that's the way you can feel. That that had to have been someone else. It couldn't have been me because the me that exists now is not that me that existed back then. Why? Because that me died. That person back there to become a true Christian, not just one in name only or because your family said to do this or because you were, you know, just following the crowd. But the true Christian really did have to die and become a new person. And so it really isn't you that did those things. That's what he's saying here. Now he goes on to talk about this a little bit more in Ephesians 1. There's a parallel. I want, I want just, see, this isn't just some fanciful interpretation of the book of Romans. This isn't just pulling one little word or passage out of Romans, making a big deal when it doesn't fit the whole New Testament. This, this, this is taught repeatedly in the New Testament. This idea that baptism is a demarcation point between life and death, or should I say death and life, Paul says in Ephesians 1, this, this takes place across a chapter divide. I know that the chapter divisions bother us and we read and we stop at the end of a chapter. But let me tell you, the guy who did those, I think his name was Langston or something like that. Apparently he was riding along in a carriage between Paris and somewhere else or something like that and, and dividing this text up into chapters. And somebody said, I, I think his pen slipped a few times. Because the chapter divisions don't really stop where they often do. Even the first chapter of the Bible doesn't stop in the right place. It goes on down from, in, in Genesis 1, it should go on down to chapter 2, verse 4. It should go all the way down, but it doesn't. But anyway, it gets just as bad from where, you can't, those are just markers to help you know where to, to, to memorize something. They're not a division that God put in there. And so this teaching goes right across the chapter divide between chapter 1 of Ephesians and chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 19, he's talking about this grace of God, the power of God, and, and the love of God. And what is his exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, speaking of God, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now I'm gonna tell you, you can't, if you wanna look at what that says, it says that Christ was raised from the dead. Is there a death in there? Well, He was dead. The only way you can be raised up is if you're dead. So He was dead, it says He was dead, and then He was raised up and made to sit in the heavenly places. That's chapter one. All that was accomplished in chapter one by the power of God. Now then, go over to chapter, keep, keep reading in that book, you'll see it doesn't really break much for this chapter two. Over in chapter two, we'll just skip down to verse five. And then he says, even we, Christ was dead, put in the grave, came up out of the, was raised out of the grave, seated at the right hand of God by the power of God. And he says, even we, we, we Christians, when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, By grace have you been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he says, you you Christians, you were dead in sin. You've been buried in parentheses because you can't be raised up unless you're buried. You were dead. You're put in the grave. You were raised up by God and made to sit in the heavenly places. It's the exact same thing that happened to Christ. By the power of God. Except he says here, it's by the grace of God that this happens to you. For by grace have you been saved. Now, I want to ask you something, verse 6 here. What is this raising up from? What's the raising up here? Oh, that's the resurrection of the dead. The end of time. No, it isn't. This is something that had already happened to the Ephesians. They had already been raised up from being dead. What this is, is baptism. This is being raised up from baptism. That's what Paul is saying. The same writer who wrote this, wrote Romans, that we were dead, we we're buried in baptism, therefore we were buried with Christ in baptism, he says, that we might be raised up to the glory of the Father. So here you see this same parallel. We were dead, we were buried in baptism, raised up from the grave of baptism, and made to sit in the heavenly place. So the, the form of the doctrine then is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ but baptism, and that means by this, by inference, very clearly, immersion, because that's what the word baptized means, immerse or dipped, is the form of the gospel. It's the beginning point of that pouring into a mold that you live your life by or live your life after. Of death, death to the old life, the old man, the old way of thinking, the old way of living, burial into, into water to show this death, And then like Christ was buried in the tomb, you were raised up from the tomb, you're raised up from the water of baptism and raised up to be a new creature. So this is the form of the gospel that we have to understand. So it isn't just a matter of at Christmas or Easter we baptize a few people because they've already been saved. That is not at all what the New Testament teaches about this or that it's something that you do as a sign of something else. This is that form of doctrine that we have to understand or imitate. So, uh, I I can tell you clearly, when I was saved, according to the New Testament, and that's that night, April 22nd, 1966, and it was freezing cold, and I was shaking, a shaking little 13-year-old boy, and I was sitting right there, and when they began to sing the song... I raised my hand and waved at the preacher. I want to be baptized. He And they took me back to here and some, the building where we were, and I got in that water, and it was so cold I could barely stand it. Uh, we didn't have a heated building very much. It didn't, well, they were so cheap, they didn't turn the heater on very much. Anyway, I know when that happened. And I felt like everything had been lifted off of me. Boy, did I know that the weight I had at 13 was not all the weight I was going to carry. Okay, I didn't know it then, but I know now that that, what I thought was heavy then was not that heavy, but it was heavy enough to move me to be saved. Now, did I go back on that confession I made? Yes, I, I didn't live up to the confession I made that day that I was going to walk according to Christ's will. I sinned against Christ, and shamefully so. But Christ was able to redeem me even again. But that's when it started. And I know that because of this scripture that tells me when that event occurred. And if you go through life and that doesn't happen to you, then, well, you haven't obeyed the form of the gospel. You can be a nice person if you want to. You can be a good person. But you've never been buried and had your sins washed away. Why tarriest thou? Ananias said to Paul, Saul Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Acts twenty two, sixteen. Now that the teaching is not taught in a lot of churches, and, and there are reasons why, philosophical reasons why, but unfortunately it's pretty clear in the New Testament that that's what's going on. And, and interestingly enough, notice what he says in Ephesians two, eight and nine, right here in this discussion of Christ dying, being buried and raised up, and you dying and being buried and raised up. He says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not something that is against grace. It isn't baptism or grace. Being baptized according to the scriptures, according to the way the scriptures teach, for the reason the scriptures teach, is grace. It's accepting the grace of God. Because that's the only way it could happen. God doesn't have to offer this means of salvation, but he does. That's his grace. So right here it says we're saved by grace through faith. Now faith comes from me believing God's word. And so when I believe God's word, then guess what you do? You obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That's the connection. It's right here in this passage. Now I want to show you the other, how strongly this is connected to the gospel itself. Here in first Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you, Paul says. He's going to talk about the resurrection in this whole chapter, but he begins it by saying, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then he lists the witnesses. So right here, when Paul is going to define what the gospel is, he talks about Christ dying, being buried, and being raised up on the third day. That's the form that the gospel takes. Then he says, when you obey that form of doctrine by being baptized for the remission of your sins and being raised up, by the way, this is not what happens when you baptize a baby. Okay? This is not what happens when you baptize a baby. This is something that has to occur in the heart of the person being baptized, and they have to be dipped and plunged. Are they plunging any babies under the water today? Well, you'd probably be arrested for doing that. Unfortunately, baby be fine, but you get arrested. No, infant baptism does not fit the form of the doc of the gospel. Does not fit the form of this doctrine in which you were taught. Baptism for some other reason besides being saved doesn't fit this form. And he also says here that. You were delivered over to the form of doctrine. What does it mean to be delivered over to it? Well, a guy named Pollard in his commentary about this had a good comment. I know you just love reading these comments from commentators, but sometimes they're better than what I can say. They have been delivered over to the form of doctrine that they had obeyed from the heart. The point Paul made was not that a form of doctrine was delivered to them, but rather that they were delivered over to it. They did this from the heart, denoting an inward disposition as opposed to some external code, such as the law of Moses, that they were going to obey. What he's saying is the reason these people were baptized is because they had been delivered over to the form of doctrine. They were going to do from the heart what it said. It was not something that you can do to a baby or someone who was unwilling, or someone who's being pressured by a husband or a wife, this is something that had to come from there, and they, and they were delivered over mm-hmm. to this form. It took all of them to do that. Now, this is the problem for most of us. And we'll, let me read the rest of what he says here. The New Testament, however, shows another way to freedom. And it's not by what one can do to control external forces, but rather it's by the surrender of our own will and power to an external force. To God, the paradox is that the person who is truly free is the one who has become a slave to God. By de- being delivered over to something, he's picturing a form of servitude. That's why he says you're like slaves now. You were slaves to sin. Now that you've obeyed this gospel from the form of the gospel from the heart, you become slaves to somebody else. You've been delivered over to a new master. We had one master. We've been taken from that master and we've been delivered to a new master. So the question really is, and we'll close with this, does your way of life show that your baptism meant what it should to you? The only way that can happen is that if your life has been given over to Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for too many Christians, it hasn't happened that way. They live pretty much the same way they did before. They they call it being a Christian. Well, the extreme example I gave last week, the the, uh, the Christian Christian uh, Sex worker had a big article in the in the paper about this. She's a, a devout Christian. She says who is a sex worker has her big OnlyFans account, uh, makes a million dollars a year. And if you don't know what OnlyFans is, I hate to explain it to you, uh, but it's it's a more of a it's where women can get on the, I expose men too, can get on the internet, they have accounts people can sign up to. They put a little teasing, you know, uh, videos on there and then you can you can write to these people and they will make special videos just for you. You can call them up and you have special one-on-one sessions where they do pornographic things for you and so this is OnlyFans and people get very famous doing this and they get very rich doing this. Now this woman says, I used to be a sinner but now that I've become a Christian, uh, my what God gave me the gift of is bringing joy to people through sex. And so now I, I worship God, honor God, by having an OnlyFans account. And by, and by the way, I make a million bucks a year. Just throw that in. But this is her worship. This is her Christianity. She's very, she has a cross on. Very loyal to Christ. What do you think about that? I don't think that she has obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ from the heart according to the new form of death to the old person and raised up to live as a slave to Christ. There's nothing about that that is in servitude to Christ. She is, still, she is still serving her own desires and wishes. Now, I haven't even spoken of all the men that signed up for the accounts. I don't mean to leave them out of it because I'm sure some of them are supposedly devout Christians too. But if that's your situation, rethink it. Because your baptism of dying to sin and being raised up to be a new creature doesn't include that kind of lifestyle. And, and we could go on and on with the kind of things people do. Not only those kind of sexual sins, but, but people that are, that are just as greedy and envious and wicked and malicious and God, full of gossip as they were before. Their lives don't change. They just call themselves a Christian and wear a gold cross on their neck or get a, get a tattoo. I guess that's a new thing. No, your life has to reflect something different when you become a Christian. We're going to maybe continue this lesson next week. Uh, I thank you for listening today and hope that we can encourage you if your life has not been brought under the kind of servitude to Christ that it should. And all your decisions are made by Christ and not by you. Then you need to rethink where you are. If we can help you with that, we'd be glad, to, glad this morning to pray with you. You come to the front. We'll talk about what's going on, and we can pray with you. Let your brothers and sisters encourage you. I don't think you'll find, knowing the people here, I don't think you'll find shame and rejection when you come to talk about a problem. You'll find acceptance and encouragement. We encourage you to do that. Or perhaps this morning, you know that you need to be baptized for the mission of your sins. Start that new life. We can help. Everything is ready. We can help you with that if you're willing to come. Will you? Come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.